A good many years ago when I was first in a pastorate in North Carolina, I remember that I was supposed to attend pastor school in Durham, North Carolina at Duke University. And so I went to Duke for that pastor school and as happens with so many preachers, when you find yourself in a place like that, you look for a good bookstore. And in those days, I was working to build a library, and so I looked for a good used bookstore. And the city of Durham is a university city, and so I found a beautiful used bookstore downtown in the heart of downtown Durham. The heart of downtown Durham is called the Five Points because there are five streets that come together at that point. And right at the Five Points, I found a tremendously large bookstore stocked with a great mass of uh, used books. I scoured through the downstairs looking for things that would be of interest to me, and the man who ran it watched me, and he said, you know, up on the second floor, I've got a whole stack up there that if you'd like to, you may go up. They're unsorted. They're just stacked up. They've been there, many of them, for some time. If you'd just like to scout through and see if you can find anything, why check and look and see. So I went upstairs. Nobody up there, no people to come and say, may I help you, none of those problems, and I could just scour as long as I wanted to. The only problem at first was the dust. Nothing had been cleaned in months. And you take the books and open them, you know, and when you shut them, why, the dust would fly. But my, what a field day it was for a young person trying to secure books. I found a lot of things of interest, and so I buried myself. I lost myself in those books, and I was staring into a dusty old tome when suddenly a voice rang in my ear as clear as could be that said, The Spirit of the Lord done told me that Jesus is soon coming. And I sat riveted looking into that book and thought, Where did that voice come from? And while I was waiting, it spoke again, clear as could be, The Spirit of the Lord done told me that Jesus is soon coming. Well, I looked around to see if an angel had spoken and hoped that the angel might speak better English than that, but I was not sure that he would. I don't know the language of heaven that well, but nevertheless, that voice came a third time. The Spirit of the Lord done told me that Jesus was soon coming. At that point, I realized that the voice was coming in through the window that was at the end of the building that opened on the five points of the city of Durham. And so I got up and walked over to the window and looked down into the scurrying crowd of people that were moving through that five points. But over the din of it all was a voice as clear as could be, and by now I knew it was a lady's voice that spoke and said, The Spirit of the Lord done told me that Jesus is soon coming. Well, I watched and stared until I found her. It was a black lady dressed in white from head to toe, and she was marching through that, through that five points. And she was crying out her message, and as she got through the five points, she took one of those streets and she went up it. And she walked, crying as she went, looking neither to right nor to left, but crying out the message that she had on her heart. I was very interested in this, and so I forgot about my books and went downstairs and slipped out into the five points and listened. Not difficult to know where she was, and so I followed her. She crossed the street after she had traveled out a distance and came down the other side, and so I met her as she came back to the five points, and then I flipped into the crowd behind her and followed her for a block or two and crossed the street and followed her back down. I'll never forget it. It was one of those uh, unforgettable experiences. She looked neither to right nor to left. Nobody bothered her. 
She just walked straight ahead, graciously, kindly, lovingly calling out her message. The Spirit of the Lord done told me that Jesus is soon coming. As I walked along behind her, I had a lot of thoughts. It had not been too many months since I had been in a pastor school in Purdue University for the Indiana conferences. And in that series of meetings I had attended, I had enrolled in a class in apocalyptic literature by one of the great biblical scholars of, of our day at that period. He was a Methodist. He was teaching in one of our theological seminaries, and he came within, I think it was six votes in one general conference of becoming a Methodist, or jurisdictional conference of becoming a Methodist bishop. And I remember sitting as he talked one day about the book of Isaiah, and it was magnificent, and the next day he talked about the book of Revelation. And as he did, he spoke about that little unorganized group of people in the Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian churches. I don't know whether he knew about any Lutherans or Episcopalians or others, but these were the ones that he picked out who believed in the second coming of Christ in power to destroy the evil that is in the earth. And as I listened to him, he said, now there are a lot of, there's a lot of speculation about who the Antichrist is in every generation. But as far as I am concerned, the closest to the spirit of Antichrist and the most anti-Christian of all people that come are is that little unorganized group of people who believe in the second coming of Christ to destroy the evil that is in the earth. I thought, now isn't this fascinating? One pastor school I go and I find a brilliant biblical scholar teaching in a major university who says that if you believe that Jesus Christ is coming back in person to destroy the evil that's in the world, you're antichrist. And then a humble black lady pacing her way through the streets, crying out, the spirit of the Lord done told me that Jesus is soon coming. And as I walked along, I thought, now what does the scripture have to say about it? And I found myself saying, if I have to choose between these two, it is no choice. I cast my lot with my black lady friend who paces the street and calls out her message that Jesus Christ is coming back. Because the scripture is explicitly clear that he is. We've been talking about that text in Jeremiah that says that the prophet said, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walks to direct his steps. And we have been trying to say that salvation does not come from within us. And I'd like to say that salvation for human history will not come from within history. The black lady was more accurate than the theologian at that point because the salvation of the human race will come from beyond and it will come in the person of our Lord Jesus. I love the way the scripture is unanimous in its witness on this. I was thinking about the, the apostles. You take every one of the synoptics tells us that Jesus, or Jesus, let's refer to Jesus first. The, the synoptics, each of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of us give that great discourse that is found in Matthew, for instance, in chapter 24, where Jesus spoke and said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Now listen to what my words say. Of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. 
Two women shall be grinding at the mill. The one shall be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Now the Gospels are very clear that Jesus indicated that when he went back to heaven, it was not the end of his relationship to us, but he was saying, I will come again. And in an hour when the world is not looking, in an hour like that, as it was in the days of Noah, the Son of Man will appear again. But now if you will go through the New Testament, you will find that the major writers all pay tribute to this. You will remember the passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 where Paul, speaking, says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, those that have died, that ye sorrow not as others, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. That was the Apostle Paul speaking in one of the early epistles of his own ministry, speaking to an early Christian church, telling them that our hope is that one of these days Christ will appear and he will take us to be with himself. You will remember that Peter gives us something comparable to this. In the second epistle of Peter, in the third chapter, written as if Peter knew much of what kind of attitude you will find in our own day. Hear the word of Peter. Know this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth, standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise, and the element shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be 
in all holy conversation or all holy manner of life and godliness, looking for, this is his admonition to us, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found in him in peace, without spot and blameless. Scoffers, yes, but with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day, and in his time he will come, and no man knows therefore each of us should live in such a way that we find ourselves in peace without spot, and blameless. Even the Apostle John in his first epistle gives us a passage in which he refers to this. Chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Now, it's significant to me that in the New Testament you not only get the witness of Christ and the witness of the apostles, but you get the witness of the world beyond in that first chapter of the book of Acts where Luke is telling us what happened when Jesus ascended into heaven. You will remember that when he had spoken, Christ had spoken his final words to his disciples, gathered on that Judean hillside. We are told in verse 9 of chapter 1 of the book of Acts, he was taken up while they beheld, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as Jesus went up, behold, two men stood by him, by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Now it seems to me that we could not ask for the word of God to be more explicit. It seems to me that we could not ask for it to be more clear, more direct in its statement, that we have not seen the last of Jesus Christ neither individually nor corporately as a race, that just as Christ has come to many of our hearts individually, one of these days he will come suddenly to human history and it will be for the culmination of the age, it will be for the culmination of the historical process as we have known. I'm aware that one of the reasons that the biblical scholar to whom I referred a few moments ago was so negative is that there are some people who have been overly wise in this area, and there are other people who have been presumptuous. But the fact that some people go too far does not mean that we should not go far enough. And when some people overemphasize the truth, that is no reason that we should depart from it or, or ditch it or pervert it. And the scripture is very clear that Jesus Christ, it seems to me it is very clear that Jesus Christ will come again. Now, everybody wants to know when he will come. And that is the thing where we begin to get in, into trouble. 
in the faculty retreat, one of the things that I appreciated about the Reverend Mr. Peter Lord as he spoke to us was, he said, you know, God has left so many questions open for us. He said, if he had just been considerate enough to put one or two verses in the Bible to answer our basic questions, how much simpler life would have been and how much, how much theological discussion would have been precluded. All you would have had to have said would have been to just put one line in, the proper way to baptize is not by sprinkling or by effusion, but it's by immersion. And then we would have had, everybody would have settled it, and that would have taken care of it. But he said, for some strange reason, God did not see fit to do that. Now, it would have been nice, he said, if God would have just put in one line that would have told us that he was beginning, coming before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or at the end of the tribulation, or that there wouldn't be any tribulation at all. But he said, it's it is not given in any specific, direct way like that. That means, I think, that perhaps God had an, a reason for giving it the way he did. I think he intended to leave it in such a way that we would not dare to get presumptuous and we would not get to the place where we could say, I will ready my house now because he is coming tomorrow, or I can be careless in my personal living because it may be a long time before he comes because the word of Jesus is clear in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man coming. Now it seems to me though that it is obvious that there are some factors present in our day that have not been present in human history before our day that indicate that we are closer to it not only by the calendar but also by the circumstances of human history. And these seem to me to make this message more pertinent today than it has ever been before in the history of the church. I do not intend to, to go into many of these but just let me take one. The fact that man, for the first time in his life, has the capacity for total self-destruction. We have the capacity now, through atomic uh, power and through nuclear fission, man has within his control the means of destroying the human race. Twenty-two years ago, I was sitting in the Student Union building at Princeton Theological Seminary and reading the New York Times, and the religion of the science column that day, written by Bill Lawrence, the science editor at that time, was on the cobalt bomb. He said, we've now reached the place, 1954, where he said, you know, we can take a hydrogen bomb and just put a cobalt jacket around it and explode it, explode one on a raft in the Pacific, and the prevailing winds will bring death across the North American continent. Or he said, we could explode one in Germany, and it would carry prevailing death across Russia. And he said, and now I've forgotten how many years it would take before that death and destruction would be out of the, uh, out of the atmosphere and the prevailing winds would just keep carrying that around the world to destroy us all. Then Bill Lawrence went on to tell a story from the Goncourt Journal of 1869, I think it was. I don't know whether it was Goncourt or Joncourt, what it was, it's a scientific journal with which I am not acquainted. But in the middle of the last century now, just some 107 years, 109 years ago. It was a story of a group of scientists back in the 1860s who had met to discuss the possibility of finding the secret of what was in the atom. And they discussed and read their papers and debated, and finally one concluded, and it seemed to be the consensus that if man could ever take the atom apart and find out what was in it and why it worked that way and come to control it, that man would then have the power to create life. Isn't it interesting that when we found what was in it and gained a little control over it, it was not the capacity to create life that we gained, 
but it was the capacity for universal death. You see, there is something fallen and lost about our world. And our salvation will be in his hands. Thanks be unto God, our ultimate dissolution will be in his hands too, not yours nor mine. But as the, the, the scientific group came to that consensus that they would then have the power to create life, one of them said, you know, boys, he said, I think when that day comes, there will be something apocalyptic about it. He said, I think it will be like it is down at five o'clock in the saloon when the God will come in like the saloon keeper with his long keychain and his long white beard and say, boys, it's closing time and I'm closing shop. You know, I was fascinated that a science, a science editor would write that way. And you know, I am sure that when we reach that point where man can do it, God will certainly intervene. He will not let our life be taken out of his hand. There are many factors in our world, but I don't want to talk about those. I want to talk about something else. Christ is certainly closer now in his ultimate coming than he's ever been before. I think our attitude should be one of, I don't know when he's coming. I have no inside track on that. I do know that he's coming. He's promised me. And I love him enough that it would be a joy to see him today. I stood in the cemetery of an old Scottish church in Edinburgh, pastored by one of the Bonar brothers. And the man who was showing me through said, told me of his piety and his devotion. And he said he had a custom that I've loved and thought about ever since. That church was where you could look out and see the Firth of Forth and out across the North Sea to the east. And they said every night of the world, Dr. Bonar would go to his window and look out to the east and say, perhaps tonight, my Lord's coming. And then in the morning when he saw the light of a new day, he arose and his first act was to go back to that same window and say, perhaps today, my Lord will come. I don't know about you, but I think that's biblical, and I like that. It means that Jesus is not a remote figure for us. And he is not off in the misty distances, but he is a living reality and a vital part of every day, never far from our consideration. You know, I wonder if this is not the reason that God never told us in any more specific language when his son would come again. He was relatively specific about some, something of his first coming, but even there it was not, there were many who missed it. I think that the reason he is this, has presented the second coming in this way, is in order that we might get the full theological thrust that there is no way that man can ultimately shut Christ out of his life. There is no such thing as a Christ tight universe or a Christ tight life and a man should live with his life open and receptive to him. You know, we don't want to live that way. We don't like the uncertainty. We don't like to let this kind of thing come out from under our control. We want our fingers on the control so that we can say, no, it's only going to happen when I'm ready and when I permit it. But that's not the way it will be. I had a roommate when I was at Asbury from Kansas. He taught me many things. Great fellowship. 
I sometimes wondered if I learned more in the dormitory room than I did in the classroom, no reflection on the professors, but I remember many of the things that came in those days, but I remember one of the things that he told me about were the days during the Dust Bowl in Kansas in the 30s, when it looked as if Kansas was going to blow away. All that rich topsoil picked up by wind that never stopped, just carried it, devastating away. He said, you know, he said, my mother was the kind of woman who always tried to keep a dirt-free house. And he said, she worked at the job, and she made me work at it with her. He said, those dust bowl days came. The wind would blow from early morning until night, and then from night till early morning, it blows and blows and blows. And he said, you know, that wind would pick up that fine soil and blow it against our house. And he said, you know, my mother began to walk alongside of the windows, in front of the windows, and rub her fingers down the sill, and there'd just be a layer of canvas dirt there. And she'd clean, and the next day there'd be a layer of canvas dirt there. And she turned to my father, he said, and said, there must be a way that we can keep it out. So he took taping and other materials that men who knew seemed to know gave him and he said we fitted those that taping and that material in around every window in the house and worked it around every door to see if we could make those windows air, dirt tight and said after we had spent that money and that labor and fixed those windows my mother would go around in the morning and there was canvas dirt on the windowsill so he said, my dad then went and got uh, storm windows, big glass windows, and put over all of the windows, and put a storm door on. And said, he said, now nah, we'll be all right. He said, that wind blew and blew and blew. And the next day, my mother went and rubbed her hand down the windowsill, and there was canvas dirt on the windowsill. He said, we found there was no way we could keep that dirt out. And you know that's the way it is with Jesus. We can build our world plans and we can build our governments and we can do everything we else we want to do. But as disconcerting as it may be to secular, humanistic man who wants to live his own life and run it in his own way and control his own destiny, in such an hour as you think not, you'll be there. Because you cannot build a Christ-type life. A man's way is not in himself, but the end of every man's life is going to be Jesus Christ. And there's no way when that day comes that you can keep him out. How much better to lay our plans to relate to him so that when that day comes we can say, he's no stranger to me. I met him a long time ago and he is my friend and he is my savior. You know, uh, I really don't think I would want to think that it could end in any other way, would you? Do you know anybody else that you want to have his finger on the button at the end of human history? I had a great old professor at Princeton when I was there by the name of Otto Pieper, a German Lutheran who left Germany because of Hitler. And I think one of the most, one of the greatest minds that I ever knew, fantastic mind, great biblical theologian, it had a radical shift in his life take place from his early days when he felt that the gospel of Christ 
was little more than just socialism. And then God profoundly influenced him. Came a long ways, not as far as I would have liked, or some others, but nevertheless, came to the place where he lived with Scripture. I remember on, we, on Fridays, we would sit in his class for an hour, and he'd sit on the desk and answer any questions that we wanted to ask. We came toward commencement, and one of the seniors said, Dr. Peeper, what are the dozen, 15 or 20 books that every preacher should master? And old Dr. Peeper looked down silently, and then he looked up and said, Young men, I know only one book that a preacher should master. And then I remembered that in his home, on his, on his kitchen table, was a big old German Bible. And some of the people who knew him well and had been in his home said, At the end of every meal, he and his wife would take that German Bible and open it up and read to each other out of the Word of God. He was a man internationally known for his scholarship, for his work. He was speaking to a group of Presbyterian preachers near where I was pastoring, and he spoke about the second coming of Christ. And when he opened it up for questions, a young preacher stood up and said, Dr. Peeper, you are an internationally known theologian and biblical scholar. You are not going to tell me that you believe in the second coming. Of Christ. And, G and Otto Pieper looked back very simply at that young liberal Protestant preacher, and he said, well, sir, he began it, and I presume that he will wind it up. And there's something very appropriate about that. I would hate to think that it could ever end in any other way, or that there would be anyone else that would stand at that crossroads. It would be Mary David. It will be Jesus of Nazareth. It will be God's only Son. He is the one with whom every man ultimately has to do. Now that, you know, if we do not know when he is coming, I do not know a greater incentive to personal holiness than that. If he may come tonight, if I love him, I want my heart clean and I want it pure. I want it to be spotless. I would hate to have him come and find that my life was stained and defiled. It was in the Second World War. I was riding on a train, traveling all night long. There was a young lady and her sister, younger sister, who sat across the aisle from me. A service man began to sit, began to talk with the older young lady. And I remember that uh, in the course of the night, she left her younger sister and went and sat with the service man. And before too long, I noticed that she had flipped over to him and she was lying in his arms and they spent the night loving and caressing each other. I was sitting immediately behind them and as her hand came up on the back of the seat, she had an engagement ring and a wedding ring on. And as I listened to the conversation, it was obvious she had a husband overseas in the service. And I thought, what a picture of many and what if he were to come back and be at that train station when she steps off in the morning? When he comes, I want to be ready. That's what John was saying. He that hath this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. I don't know anything that's a greater incentive toward holy living than that. 
when I first became a Christian in high school. I remember that I looked for spiritual help and somebody gave me some tracks and I sent away for some more. I noticed that it said if I would just write, they would send me a batch of tracks. And so I'd been converted in August. It was in midwinter. No, it was late fall. I'd had very little encouragement and much of the fervor of those early days had begun to wane a bit. And I remember that on a late fall afternoon, I came home from school. And when I came in as a teenager and got my mail, I noticed that here was a packet of tracks. So I opened it very quickly, pulled out the pack of tracks, and the top track was on the second coming. Behold, he cometh. I remember standing there next to the dining room table in my home and reading that tract and the profound movement of the Holy Spirit upon my heart. And something said, Dennis, have you lived today the way you would want to have lived if he came today? We had a long porch, a southern house. We had a long porch that ran around the house. I remember laying those tracks down and walking out alone around that porch with the Spirit of God speaking to me. And I said, oh God, no, I haven't lived today the way I would have wanted to have lived if you were to come today. But you can live there. You can be like a bonar who says, perhaps tonight, or perhaps today. And you don't look forward to it with dread if you've let him wash your sins away and forgive you, and if you've let his spirit come into your heart and sanctify and cleanse the deep recesses of your being so that your heart is pure, clean, not through your work but through his precious blood, then you can say, yes, I look for him to come. You know, sometimes we make him so remote and I think this is the reason for this teaching, that he might come near and that he might be an expectant part of our daily life. If he is what we claim him to be, and if we have put our trust in him, why should we be afraid? I notice that the Democrats are getting very excited about Jimmy Carter. And the Republicans don't seem to be embarrassed at hoping that maybe Gerald Ford will make it. But you know, to be honest, I think I'd trade Jesus for both of them and all the rest of them put together. And I don't believe it'd be a bad trade. And if he comes, I want to be ready. It may be that I should be less afraid of his coming than Jimmy Carter's or Jerry Ford's. In fact, I think I ought. But what a good test of your relationship to him. Could you say, even so come, Lord Jesus? You know, I love that line, the Spirit of the Lord done told me that Jesus is soon coming. I don't know when he's coming. 
but I know he is. And that since I found him as Savior and Lord, when he comes, he'll be my friend and my Savior, my brother and my Lord.